Hello. Hello. And welcome to the Express Results Bulletin for Episode 8. Our journey to the heart of darkness is nearing completion. All that's left to do is for me to give you the results, some comments, and how it affects the Master Scoreboard. And it does affect the Master Scoreboard, let me tell you. Keep listening. So, in last position this time, earning minus one point yet again for the 2010s, Everybody Hurts by Helping High E.T. Jeff said, I've never liked the song. It makes me think of sad teenagers sat on the stairs at a party discussing the poem they've just written about how nobody understands them. This version adds that awful emotional soul riffing and culminated in a recording that my teenage daughters describe as way too angsty. Meanwhile, David... I should say, David is a friend of mine in the real world and a lifelong massive REM fan. You need to know this. David says, I'd never heard this version before and have only played 30 seconds, but it's my least liked REM song. And the bit I heard amplified all the elements I hate. Oh, David, it gets good after the first 30 seconds. You missed Susan Boyle. Mamoobal says, Everybody Hurts is the best song on the list. But the charity format is just a bit pants. Not a lot of love there for Everybody Hurts. I didn't read all of the comments and all of these songs, not because I'm very busy and super important, although I am, um, but because some of the songs were quite dark and I didn't want to go down the dark rabbit hole. But I did seek out all of the comments on Everybody Hurts, and I don't think there was anyone I disagreed with. We all kind of went, yeah, no. Yeah, I think some people politely put it in the Met zone because they didn't really feel they could judge it because it was a charity record. So they would just sort of leave it out. Actually, Asta summed it really well in just two words. Crocodile tears. Kind of says it all, really. Into the Met zone. In fifth place, and it's not very far ahead of Everybody Hurts, we've got Why by Anthony Newley from the 1960s. Mark said... Okay, this is more of a vote for the strange and varied career of Anthony Newley than this song itself, but it's pleasant enough and short. James, Centres of Sound, says, Very pleasant turn of the 60s pop, only really interesting for the Bowie influence. Newley did better. While Malcolm, the break doctor, said, Execrable twee nonsense, could not listen to the whole thing, just no. I'm a bit worried about this new tendency of people not to listen to the whole thing. We had to multiple occasions. It made me laugh that long. <laughs> I couldn't even listen to the entire thing. Oh, Mark, that's brilliant. Couldn't listen to the entire thing despite somebody else praising it for being short. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Not short enough. No. This short attention span culture, I don't know where it's all going to end. Still in the meta zone, in fourth position, but only missing out on the top three by just one point. We have Oasis for the 2000s with Go Let It Out. Just like the tune that will place third, Go Let It Out has the distinction of picking up votes right across the spectrum. It got firsts, second, thirds, mets and last. We've got a couple of, well, they're more like dissertations than their comments this time, but they're definitely worth reading in full. So Alex says, for me, this is at the better end of their landfill of mediocre singles, and it probably would have been given a point or two in a weaker collection. 
I find Oasis fascinating how even as soon as the second album, they'd largely deteriorated into Will This Do? And what a long, easy ride they got based solely upon that massive initial impact and excitement. Oasis are the Brexit of pop. (laughs) Oh, now he expands on this at some length. Oasis are the Brexit of pop. So many people were invested heart and soul into the idea of them heralding a return to proper music greatness for British culture that they simply couldn't comprehend or accept the cold light of day reality and stuck with them as true believers until the bitter end. The glorious possibilities of a new direction for the pop charts gave way to those much-anticipated quick-win trade deals of Roll With It and She's Electric. Yet the true believers always kept faith that the sunlit uplands were just around the corner. This song was a slightly illuminated hillock. I mean, until the Brexit analogy, I was kind of relatively on board there. That's perhaps a little harsh on Oasis. The idea that their initial impact, that's a valid point, but isn't their initial impact a phrase that's pretty much applicable to most bands? I can't think of many bands that you go, oh, yeah, actually, it was album seven where they really found themselves. Oh, I don't know. I mean, this is the kind of moment where I get a brain freeze, but right, Pulp and Blur, for starters, their first album was nothing to write home about. They got better as time progressed. Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't specifically mean the first album, but generally the first and second, and then once they get in their groove, you kind of go, all right, yeah, it's good. But, you know, like Arctic Monkeys, their impact, and then the further we get away from that point of impact, the more you're going... Want to listen to this anymore? I thought that was the third album, but AM is a mighty fine album. <laughs> it's as, it's about as good as the debut, in my humble <laughs> I'm opinion. A good night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's for, that AM is four tracks played four times. It's Kevin Kelly's thousand true fans theory, isn't it? That they this argument that you only need a thousand people to turn up at all your gigs and buy all your records and stuff for you to be able to sustain it. And Oasis just had a millions of true fans, and I think that's a really good reading of it. That those people just held on long enough to sustain them for another ten years or so. Yeah, cheer led by Noel Gallagher, who at the beginning of the release of every mediocre album of the 2000s said, oh, it's our best one since morning glory. And people believed him. I've got another lengthy comment here from Mark. Now, he says, you guys were taking the everyone loved their early stuff line. I fully acknowledge that loads of people love them, but I know plenty of folks who were in their 20s at the time who were indifferent or actively repulsed. Yeah, they were blow fans. Who found their music turgid and regressive, Liam's overstretched vowels grating, their mixture of aggressive anti-intellectualism while offering up third-hand surrealism and musique concrète, etc., via their people's borrowings, wearying. In short, I hated them pretty swiftly, and that only got worse as they stomped all over the musical landscape. They were one of the factors that made being a pop journalist in the mid-1990s less fun than I thought it was going to be. There are roughly two Oasis songs I don't flee from immediately, and this certainly isn't one of them. But Mamoubal, he says something quite nice. He says, even Lazy By The Numbers Oasis still hits a spot for me. And for you too, Trev. Depending on your view, incidentally, did you too not hit their stride on about the seventh album? Well, you two have never done it for me at any stage. So I can't really comment. We could call this the Kaiser Chiefs 
philosophy because they're still filling arenas and i don't think i think they hit their stride after about a half an album side a album one and then that was it i'm actually just hoping that there's some metallica fans listening because i do think metallica got better with age me saying that will really annoy metallica fans (laughs) oh let's move on to the top three just edging into third position in this top three earning one point for the 1980s. It's Coward of the County, Kenny Rogers. And again, like Oasis, votes right across the board. There was no Kenny consensus here. Jeff said, morally ambiguous country darkness, perfect storytelling. Mark said, I like country. I like story songs. I like Kenny's voice. And as Nick says, his career as told in that documentary is an interesting one. I'm not sure what I thought was going on in the rape section of the song when I heard it as a kid. But as Mike says, it's told economically and without going for sentiment. And as for the moral, he's still pledging to, quote, walk away from trouble when I can. And only saying sometimes you have to fight. It's hardly deathwish. Fair point, that Good lyrical analysis. Uh, Centuries of Sound was my favourite comment on this one. My favourite comment of all of the ones that I read. Uh, and I did say that was try to dodge particularly this song, but I like what Centuries of Sound generally says. I gave the review too much airtime anyway, and it was my review was really dark and deep. So I'm not going to actually tell you what Centuries of Sound said, but that was dark and deep and a lot more succinct than what I said, and I think spot on. Well, I have a quote here from Alex, and Alex says, I am still uncomfortable about Becky's ordeal being a plot device for the more important business about what makes a man. Am I being overwoke about this? It's a song about him, of course, and you can't say everything in three verses, but he's given three dimensions and she's not. So whilst I can't deny a great performance, great music and a strong country music story, I'd personally rather move on. That's an excellent comment. This is an excellent comment. I did a bit more. I got a bit obsessed with research for this song. The Gatlin brothers actually supported Kenny Rogers on tour before Coward of the County was released. It just adds to the building dossier of evidence that everybody knew what was going on. I also found on YouTube, I found an audio of a podcast where they discuss this and it includes a clip of the live interview with Larry Gatlin on a chat show, which backs up what we said and the weird thing is just how relaxed larry gatlin was about it he's almost like hey yeah you guys sure punked me there (laughs) but that was then and this is now just one more thing i made a comparison between kenny rogers and nick cave well it turns out that 1979 number one the gatlin brothers have was covered by nick cave that's enough of my gatlin brothers trivia there will be no more We should just um, read out James Centres of Sound's comment here. He says, just horrible, both bland and offensive. You wouldn't think it possible. Afraid I don't buy the context argument. The context here is the UK charts. And in that context, it stinks. Right. We now have a huge jump in the scoring from third to second place. And despite having led the field for more than a week's worth of voting... Edison Lighthouse have ended up in second place with Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes, earning two points for the 1970s. It is the only one of these songs this time where every single voter placed it inside the top three. That actually isn't the case for our winner. James said, Bubblegum pop in the guise of a rock band. Feels a bit too familiar. Asta said, 
This song is deeply embedded in my childhood and brings up nothing but happy associations. It couldn't be much further away in mood from nothing compares to you. David says, I just turned 12 and this still catchy record sums up that time as, in a way, does Kenny Rogers' version of Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town from 1969, which is a far more scary record than Coward of the County. I heard Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes in our train station coffee shop over the weekend. It, I, I didn't realise it still got played anywhere at all. Nice to hear it. My daughter tells me that it absolutely was a TikTok thing. And I heard it in a cafe in Blackpool on Saturday. So it obviously still gets played all over the place. And in the wake of the TikTok success, there was an uplifting dance remix made of it as well. That will be wonderful. And unfortunately, people can't see me doing the inverted commas around wonderful. Uh, I love Grow's work. My Rosemary Goes got played twice last weekend by a certain DJ who's <gasps> for some reason got it in his head. Oh, <laughs> and how did it go down? Uh, much better one night. One night was really early doors. And I was just like, oh, do you know what? Let's just put something a bit. And, that, and it was heads nodding, but it was only head nodding stage of the night. But yeah, middle of the night on a rock night. And I think I'd done Ring of Fire and Jolene. So that's the kind of rock night it is. I go pretty, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's rock, really loose. And it was a brilliant bridging track to go into. What did we do next? Oh, I've got a Scar Punk version of 500 Miles that I played after it. It's by a band called Sponge from Leeds. Listeners, check them out. Outstanding. Obvious segue. Right. <laughs> Just two points ahead of Edison Lighthouse. And that was thanks to a late surge of solid first places. Our winner is Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor, earning three points for the 1990s. This is actually the first win for the 1990s, and that means that every decade apart from one has now had at least one winning tune, and that unlucky decade is the 2000s. James says, just one of the greatest number ones. No matter how many times I hear it, it still grabs me. Malcolm says, I mean, there really is no contest this week. Winner by a mile. One of the most beautiful love songs sung by one of the most gorgeous voices. And Asta says, I didn't like it at the time, probably because most of my music listening in the 90s was done while driving. And nothing kills a good road trip faster than this much woe and gloom. Taken for what it is, her version is a winner. I still don't like the string instrumental bridge, and I much prefer the sax using Prince's version. I'm not going to say anything about Prince right now, aside from that I think the days of his reputation sliding by on strange and quirky are numbered. Musical geniuses are all mad, bad and or dangerous to know, I guess. You did speculate after our chat about this last week that you thought it might do better with the audience than with us. Yeah. And in the first half of the voting, I thought I had misspeculated. And then we got the late surge. The late surge were all basically Sinead first, Edison second. There was a sort of uniformity to it. Right. Let's feed those results into the master scoreboard. Still in sixth position, sliding back from one point to zero points. The poor old 2010s. Still in fifth position, still with three points. The 2000s. Still in fourth position, but increasing their lead over the 2000s, now with seven points, thank to Sinead O'Connor, is the 1990s. Now, as predicted last time, the 1960s are no longer our winning decade, but they're still in first place because we now have a three-way tie. The 60s, 70s and 80s are all 
on 10 points. Couldn't get more exciting. The voting in this episode is going to be so crucial. Wow. I'm looking forward to this episode. There's some outstanding music this time, I think. It's a good one. And rest assured, listeners, there will be no more journeys to the dark side. Well, that I know of. Who knows? Who knows? Well. Oh, don't don't put them off. (laughs) We're fun. (laughs) Come back soon. Uh, It's bye for now. And we'll be back in a couple of days with episode nine. Bye-bye.